whether you have uh, been married or not, uh, probably most of you, if not all of you, uh, have attended a wedding, a wedding ceremony uh, before. And one of the interesting aspects about a wedding, of course, are the different kinds of dress and attire that people are uh, wearing. Certainly you have the bridesmaids, uh, those dresses that uh, the bride or bridesmaids have chosen for them, uh, the, the special gown and bride's dress that she has chosen to wear. Uh, but then you also have the groomsmen, not quite as exciting or charming, but uh, tuxedos or uh, choices of uh, various kinds of suits that might be chosen to wear. And then, of course, you have the guests who, that have come. Uh, some of them choose to wear more formal attire, some quite informal uh, wear. But whatever the attire might be, does it really matter? Does it make much of a difference? Well, as we continue in Matthew's gospel and we come to Matthew chapter 22, we are going to hear a parable, another parable that Jesus gives to us, in which the garment that a person is wearing makes all the difference in the world. And so we turn our attention to hear about this wedding feast, the parable of the wedding feast, and this particular unique garment. So Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's word. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, Look, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. How sure are you that you will be in the kingdom of heaven? How sure are you that you are in the kingdom of heaven? How confident are you of your own salvation? We have just heard a parable uh, spoken to a number of people, many of whom were sure, very confident. They may have had different ideas of what constituted this kingdom that Jesus has been talking about, what heaven meant and was all about, but they were sure they would be there. They were confident they were on the inside. 
For you and I to be confident, to have assurance of our place in the kingdom, means to be attentive for sure to what Jesus is saying in this parable. There's key words we see throughout this story Jesus tells. Certainly we see two of them at the very final verse of this passage in verse 14. Uh, The final verse forms really the main point that Jesus has and drives home. He says, for many are called. Many are called. That is, many are invited. There's a general invitation that we see uh, take place throughout the parable. Many are called, but few are chosen. Few are elect. Few persevere to the end. Few are of true faith in the Lord. But then we see a repeated word prior to this that runs through a number of verses, and that's the word invited or invite. You see it in verse 3. The king, he sent his servants to call those who were invited. We see it again in verse 4. He sent other servants, more servants, to tell those who were invited. I've prepared the feast. We see it again in verse 9. Go to the main roads and invite to the feast as many as you find. Many are invited. Uh, There's a sense of privilege in being invited to a special occasion because it means you are uh, included. Someone has thought of you. You get to participate in the honor of whatever that special occasion centers on. Uh, We might think of, indeed, uh, an invitation to a wedding for a special friend, a close friend of ours, or a celebration for a retirement gathering or party that you've been included Invited to. Uh, we know in many countries, including our own, there's the privileged invitation that will come from the President of the United States. Since the 1980s, there's been the tradition for teams in the NFL, the National Football League, who have won the Super Bowl, to be invited to the White House by the President. Most have accepted that invitation, but it may come to a surprise to you, not all have accepted it. And it's just not in in the world of sports or in the world of football. In recent history, high-profile invitations have been issued from the White House and have either been rescinded by the president or rejected by those invited. As far back as 1984, a few players from the 84 NBA champion Boston Celtics rejected an invite from the Reagan White House. And the legend, Larry Bird, is famously to have said, if the president wants to see me, he knows where to find me. Strong words, strong, bold rejection. Uh, Of course, the the rejection of generous invitations goes much further back than the 1980s. In a very real sense, the Lord has been extending invitations to all kinds of people to be Included to come into his kingdom through the millennia. And the parable Jesus gives here centers on this gracious invitation into this kingdom. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And that's the first thing I want us to see. It is the offer from this king. The offer of grace. Verse 2. Jesus likens the kingdom to that of a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And then he sent out his servants to call those who were invited. Now, this is not a wedding that is thrown by ordinary people. This is a wedding thrown by a king. 
this is going to be an extravagant wedding. That's part of what Jesus is wanting to communicate. Normal Jewish weddings lasted an entire week, seven days. They may still be that way today. Of course, this is a wedding for royalty, so it may have been even longer than that. Indeed, providing uh, the best meat and drink and plenty of it, as mentioned in verse 4. Several oxen have been slaughtered, fattened calves. This is the best meat. This is the prime rib. And so the kingdom, Jesus said, is like a feast, a wedding feast. There's eating, there's conversation, fellowship, music, and dancing. He's driving home this sense of celebration and joy and gladness. This is a great deal. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's a celebration with the finest feast, finest festivity. And I wonder, do we view life in the kingdom this way? Jesus is seeking to shape and inform our understanding of entrance into this kingdom. Entering into his kingdom, in part, among other things, is like a wedding feast. There is celebration. There is joy and gladness. Now, there's a lot of similarity between this parable and the one we heard, if you tuned in last week, the parable of the rebellious tenants in the vineyard. In both of these parables, there's a son. Last week, the son was sent, if you recall, after the servants to go and gather the fruit. He was rejected and he was killed. This week, he's the reason for the feast. The son plays a central role in both parables. In both as well, there are servants who are repeatedly sent first to go gather fruit from the vineyard, or in this case, to extend invitation after invitation to those called, those invited. In both cases, the servants are rejected. You hear verbal echoes in verses 3 and 4. He sent his servants into verse 4. Again, he sent other servants, almost word for word in, in both parables. And in both, judgment follows the rejection of the servants and of the son. But there is a difference in this parable. Last week, the master sent the servants to receive the fruit. That is, what was due to the master. What he expected from the tenants in their work, in their calling. That which would define the Lord's people. It's, it was a picture of the fruit of godliness and godly living. But if last week was about the fruit of godliness, this week is about the invitation to a feast. If you were only left with last week's parable, you might conclude that the Christian life is really defined solely on the challenging soil and ground of obedient living, pursuing godliness. That is what defines the Christian faith, the pursuit after godliness, obedience. Well, that's true in many respects, but this parable gives uh, uh, balances, balances it out for us because it reveals a king who is lavish in his generosity and ex- extravagant in his grace. One author described the Lord here as having a wide-armed 
open-hearted hospitality. This is a God, this is a king who is hospitable beyond our full comprehension. Look again at verse 4. He sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner. Oxen, fat calves, everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Everything is ready. Everything is prepared. There's no work of godliness here at the outset. Respond to the invitation. Enter in. This is a picture of a generous sovereign. He loves his son. He loves his subjects. And he spares nothing to lay upon them the most lavish feast for those subjects in honor of his son. What a picture of the gospel. It is not prove yourself. It's simply come, enter in, join into the feast. And so Jesus is wanting us to get hold of the kind of king this is, the kind of God that we serve and worship. He's not a grasping God. He is a giving God. He's not grasping, he is giving. This is what the Bible calls grace. It is the free outpouring of the riches of mercy and love to those undeserving. It's unmerited, unearned favor. And I wonder, for us, for myself, is this how we understand our God? If you're like me, deep down within, there is this view of a grasping God at times, a a God who wants to get and to get and to get, tight-fisted, someone who wants to use and exploit, to get and get, not give and give and give. Uh, Perhaps some of us have been raised in homes that were very, very demanding. The expectation of the kind of behavior you were to carry out is very, very high. Or you were taught growing up in particular churches that God is merely one who drives his people and he demands much from his people. John Piper, uh, in his most recent work, very brief work called Coronavirus and Christ, I would certainly commend it to you, just about 100 pages, and toward the end he quotes from a sociologist of religion who is a contemporary named Rodney Stark. He says this, Rodney Stark in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, points out that in the first centuries of the Christian church, the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. Outside of the Christian church, there was no cultural or religious foundation for mercy. There was no belief that the gods cared about human affairs. Mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. And like the ancient world, many live today out of this worldview defined by merits, fairness, You have because you deserve. You've earned it. And yet, who is this king? Who is this king who lavishes undeserving guests with a feast that satisfies? And that's the picture Jesus wants us to see. It is a feast here 
that fulfills the deepest longings of our human hearts. Because like the parable of the vineyard, this picture of a feast is heavily loaded with Old Testament connotations. And it's helpful to dig back into where those are coming from. One of those places seems very clearly from Isaiah chapter 25 that Jesus perhaps is pulling from or has in his mind. It might be helpful to turn there. I'll read a few verses, or you can read it later. But Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What a marvelous picture. It turns out there's a whole lot more going on at this feast than mere eating and drinking. This is an occasion in which God fulfills the deepest longings of human hearts. He's wiping away tears. He's swallowing up death. People are rejoicing in salvation. This sounds good, right? Who would not respond to this invitation with joy and enthusiasm? And yet, while we learn from Jesus the generosity of this king, we also learn about the sinfulness of humanity and how they respond. The rejection to the invitation comes in two main ways. One we might call a casual refusal. A casual refusal. The other is this open hostility. In verse 3, the invitation is sent. To those who were first considered, it says, but they would not come. The invitation goes out, they would not come. The late James Montgomery Boyce says on this verse, it's not that they could not, it's that they would not. Kind of a theological category there for us. It's not that they do not have the ability, it's that their will is bent elsewhere. They're carrying out their own desire, their own will of refusing the invite. They're getting exactly what they want. So he sends more servants in verse 4. Everything is ready. Verse 5. But they paid no attention. One went off to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, even killing them. So we do see this open hostility among some of them. And indeed, today, some exert tremendous amounts of energy to oppose the gospel and the Bible and the Christian faith and the Christian church. Uh, But for many, I think we can say, perhaps even for most, it is a casual refusal of the gospel. And it's captured so well in verse 5. They simply paid no attention. Paid no attention. This may be the most common way that people indeed reject The Lord Jesus Christ, they have no interest. Their heart is elsewhere. Normal life activity is their God. 
It says one went to his farm, another to his business. Isn't that interesting? It's not an outright rejection of the king in pursuit of some wicked, heinous, evil act. It's just their normal business. It's just their normal lives. And that's how subtle idolatry is. Human nature is inclined to live for their God-given tasks rather than for God himself. In one scholar's words, he said, Like Old Testament idolaters, we worship the work of our own hands. Our work often is our God. A man can be so busy making a living, he fails to make a life. Some of us have perhaps read or heard this story enough times that we're kind of inured or conditioned by the actual shock of the rejection of those who were invited. You think about how many tragedies there are in the world. There's so many sorrows, so many calamities. Uh, We're enduring a great tragedy and calamity right now all around the world. But there is no tragedy, no tragedy that comes even close to the casual and hostile rejection of the Son of God and His wedding feast. It It should be a shock. But what does this king do? He will not stop. Uh, His grace is too abundant. His purpose too important to glorify his son. So what does the king do? He doesn't just merely judge those who reject him. He does do that, emphasizing the great separation of those who will not join in. But he says to his servants in verse 9, Go then to the main roads. Invite to the feast as many as you find. So they went and they gathered all whom they found, both bad, those wicked, and good. So the wedding was filled with guests. Notice those words. Go to the main roads. Invite as many as you find. They're kind of a precursor to what we find at the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the so-called Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. The servants, they're to scour the land and the nations to find people and to gather them together. And that's an important word, gather. It's where we get the word synagogue. That's what God is desiring to do. That's what the king is interested in doing. Gathering the people of God together. That's the central evidence of God's saving mercy. That's what we desire. That's why we desire to be physically back together again. That's what God is seeking to do, to gather his people together. Gather all you find, both wicked and good. Those who seem to have well-ordered lives, good, as well as the dregs of society. One author said, The flawed, as the gospel teaches us, are especially dear to the heart of Christ. There's to be an awe, a wonder, that the Lord would invite me, that he would include me. Why? And what a shock this picture would have been to the Pharisees, many of the Judaizers, to see those unsuspecting guests at the 
wedding feast and wedding hall, the good and the bad, the Jew and the Gentile. In Luke's account of the story, the lame, the blind, the poor, the crippled. And so there's the picture. You have a wedding hall full of guests. He's thrown wide open the doors to his kingdom. And we are included in that invitation. There is no one who hears these words who can say, I have not been invited to the wedding feast of the king. He's thrown open the doors. What a great place to end the story, right? A wedding hall full of people. You can picture the scene now from verse 10. It's a full hall. The theme music comes on. You can imagine the final shot of the film director. The camera kind of begins panning out, and you see a happy, contented people enjoying this feast. Shouldn't the story end there? But what do you make of verses 11 through 13? But when the king, notice it's the king himself coming to examine the guests. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's that horrific picture of the separation that people will endure and suffer apart from the Lord Jesus. So Jesus concludes the story with this shocking ending. The king sees a man without a wedding garment. That is, he is without the proper, clean attire, preferably white for the occasion. To dress in some other way in that culture would have been an offense to the host. And because the host is the king, the man is speechless. This is not a man who couldn't afford the proper attire, but someone who simply showed up deliberately careless and scruffy. His clothing outwardly is revealing his heart inwardly, his contempt for his host. This ending really fills out the whole story, because isn't it interesting that many earlier in the story rejected the invitation casually? They paid no attention, we were told. One went to his farm, another to his business. Just a casual kind of rejection. Well, this man has not responded uh, with a rejection, he has come to the wedding feast. He has responded to the invitation, but he too has done so in a casual manner. He's simply drifting along with the crowd. He's simply taking the feast for granted. The king and his son do not matter much to him at all, perhaps. In our language today, we might say this is a person who participates in the life of the church. He or she has been baptized. They call themselves a Christian. They participate in service of the Lord. But it's just a casual acceptance. Jesus' words, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment, is put in a way that readers like you and I will ask ourselves from time to time, how did I get in here? Do I have a true faith? Is there fruit in my life? 
Is this faith sincere? Some people believe the wedding garment represents the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that the believer is robed in the righteousness of our Lord. Theologically, we might call it the imputed righteousness of Christ. We have been justified. We've been counted righteous because of what our Lord has done in His death and His resurrection. Others take it to mean the good works, the the fruit of a truly righteous life. In either case, it represents a person who is truly redeemed of the Lord. But it does come as a warning, doesn't it? The 17th century Empress Catherine the Great said, I shall be an autocrat. That's my trade. And the good Lord will forgive me. That's his trade. God specializes in forgiveness. He's merciful. He's loving. I have nothing to worry about. He's forgiven in the past. He'll forgive again. True assurance of faith is a wonderful gift to the people of God. He desires for his people to have assurance and confidence. He wants that for us. He wants us to have a sense of wonder and awe, thanksgiving for his saving mercy in our lives. But there's a narrow line between true assurance of faith and dangerous complacency. And Jesus here, in drawing this individual here without the wedding garment, is calling us to consider, examine ourselves. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, All assurance that is true assurance makes a man holy. So we can ask ourselves as we begin from the start, how sure are we of our place in the kingdom of heaven? God desires that his people not only be assured that they've uh, received the invitation extended to them to come to the wedding feast, that we have been called to use Jesus' language, but to be assured we have been chosen. To be assured that we've been delivered from sin, that we've been made alive in Jesus Christ, that we have been forgiven, that we are being sanctified, that, that our heart comes alive at times with response of gladness and joy for what God has done in our lives, that the faith I am living is sincere, and I'm walking after the Lord. And he's continuing to sanctify me. He's continuing to grow me. But I've responded. He's called me. I'm his. I love him. I love his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all of the parables, and we thank you for this one, how you clarify for us uh, the good news of the gospel, not only of that general invitation that goes abroad to the nations of the earth, but then how you work faith in your children, those you have called, those you have chosen, those you have elected to be your own. Lord, we know that this is a work you do in the heart, replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, regenerating and renewing us, how we rest upon your grace as we've seen, Lord, in the story of your graciousness as our King. And Lord, we thank you for that uh, celebratory note that you provide, the, the, the occasion of joy and gladness. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in what we have. Fill our hearts with, uh, with joy and gladness, with thanksgiving. 
And Lord, we pray that you would work in us uh, the assurance of our faith. That we would be confident as we continue our lives in repentance, seeking your word and your will, that we can rest assured of your claim um, on our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.